From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. G'day, my name is Deng Tekadut, and I'm a criminal lawyer. I came from a country called Sudan, and uh, my father was a fisherman, so want to grow when I grow up my main goal was to become a fisherman maybe better than my father there are people with interesting life stories and then there are people whose lives read like a screenplay from being conscripted as a child soldier in Sudan to finding a new home in suburban Australia as a refugee where he taught himself to read and to write Deng Thiakadut is today a lawyer representing those who, just like him, struggle to find a voice. He's even been at the centre of one of those most modern of phenomena, a viral video sensation. Like millions of children who grow up within the geography of conflict, his childhood was taken away. I didn't understand what freedoms I had lost, he says. I didn't understand how fearful I should have been. You were born in Malak, in South Sudan. You are one of eight children. Take us back there to Malak. What do you remember of your life there? Well, uh, I remember being a, a playful child. I grew up right next to Nile Bank. And the bank of the Nile, there's so many creatures, so much beautiful animals there. And, uh, of course, I forgot to say that my father was also a hunter. He used to hunt hippopotamus and, and crocodiles. So, and Did you go out with him hunt. on those journeys? No, 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 because I di- uh, he died when I was only two years old. I still remember songs that were sung about him and his own songs too. Like? So, well, they, they're all in Dinka. <laughs> the whole Dinka. So I, I don't know whether that would make any sense to you if I sing in Dinka. <laughs> Come on, give us a bit. <laughs> All right. Do you want me to try to sure. sing in Dinka? All right. Dinka lola amora chwara pinyaka kwoi. Wait kwoi chibol mungyangdi. Wetuan wadana chitek gamlyal. Dinka lola amora chwara pinyaka kwoi. Wait kwoi chibol mungyangdi. Wetuan wadana chitek gamlyal. Basically... The song was about my father's sec- first wife, and she was one very strong woman. And because she had uh, a first son, and the first son then passed away, and then she had another child, a girl, and she was sick, really sick, about to die, and. Uh, the song was sung to uplift her spirit and to get her stronger. And after that, uh, the child got better and her spirit was stronger. And she went on to have uh, five more other children. And then subsequently, uh, my father gained confidence. So that was the issue. You, how did your father die when, when you were two years old? Uh, vivid memory. Uh, my father was first, he, he was a rebel back uh, when there was a war in Sudan, so almost everyone is involved in all kind of uh, rebellions against the, the the government at the time, the regime. You were injured badly 
from hunting himself. And uh, when he died, what I remember for my mother is that there was uh, an incident involving his in-laws from his second, uh, from his third wife. How many wives did he have? He had six. Yeah, and that's common. Well, it's common. It's common. It's common. Is a uh, people use it as a practice now, almost like a culture. People hang on their neck, but it, it, it is not culture. It, it just came through uh, because we had suffered from generation of conflict, generation of slavery, generation of almost everything. And men usually die during the war to go there. So when there were women that were left there with no children, and then it was obligation at the time for my tribes to be able to marry these girls that are have no men because there were no men at the time. And that's where it catch up to become a culture. People make it now a culture, wear it on their neck, but without knowing the foundation for how this polygamy uh, occur or start. And then people are actually having a misconception about whether it was a culture or whether it was something to do with the economic or or, or a society in general or building the community. Did you have a relationship with the other wives? Were they part of your existence when you were a small child? Yeah, when I was a child, I my two uh, other mothers, <laughs> I call them mothers actually, uh, were alive. One of them was one of my best. She would, I'd just hang around at her house. I remember even... She rescued me from a baboon that attacked me because I did something bad to a baboon at a time. <laughs> the geography, the environment sounds like it was a central part of life there. Your father, a fisherman, a hunter, you're growing up on the, on the banks of the Nile River. How central uh, is the Nile to the people of South Sudan uh, in the community where you lived? You know, when you travel up and down the Nile, it mm. is so central to both the creationist stories that are upheld yeah. Yeah. but also the daily life? Well, uh, I, I, I think to be, to be born at the bang of the Nile, just right there, is, is, a, is a blessing to know that, uh, that I was born right there at the Nile. But again, to be born at the Nile is considered a cursed and a lot of a lot of issues, a lot of things happen across the Nile, and a lot of Christians will know that uh, we even there's a curse in uh, Isaiah eighteen or nineteen something somewhere there about the people on the bank of the Nile. Us, uh, just growing up at the back of the Nile, I remember going back again and again recently when I went back to South Sudan. And nothing had changed. It's still beautiful, but we're not using uh, the water from the Nile. And that's why we have uh, poverty in the country. We're not preserving. We, we won't claim the rights of the Nile, but we have the water. We have the biggest swarm in the world. So we could have used it as South Sudanese and Sudanese in general. Could feed the whole of Africa in general. Could eradicate all this war. What for?
So you've given us a, a snapshot of the complexity of life for uh, you and the community that you were born into, but educate us on on the broader context. Uh, Sudan uh, in the early to mid nineteen eighties, uh, you know, is a is a difficult place. Uh, it it is war ravaged. Uh, why? What's the dynamic at play? <sighs> I. I still believe, and I know uh, to my mind, that the war that had given us this uh, disaster, nearly three million people die in a conflict. It's a war that I live in, a war that I witnessed it, a war that I was part of it. I know children that were born in the same way, and my father was born in the same war, and it hadn't stopped. Still going in Sudan, still going in Darfur, going in Nuba, and going on inside South Sudan at the very moment there's still war going on. To be able to see that and the machineries of the war had advanced to the next level, that they just consume humans with uh, a fire and and all these things. Just imagine them now in the hands of uh, a progressive society, people that want to progress society and also a weapon in the hand of unprogressive people in society, what they're going to do with it. That is now in South Sudan. It's clear as today that we're still mm-hmm. killing one another, we're still bombing one another. I feel sad. Yeah. We should just look at a way to, to move forward as a human being and then just stop killing one another. Yeah, just, just, just stop. That's, that's all I ask for is just stop. For the people in the community in which you grew up in your early years, what was the motivation for fighting? There are four purposes, and one purpose, one is a political propaganda, which I'm not part of it. Uh, second part is also political propaganda, but had a religious context in it. There was an idea of Islamists, in the country, of trying to make everybody uh, Muslim, and there's a resistance from a Christian side and uh, people that don't that don't worship uh, the, the modern uh, religions. They that fracture had actually one of the reason for a fighting motivation of jihad, and there's also economic factor where they there was nothing going on in the south. There was no development in the country in the south, just like now. Uh, there was no uh, nothing there. All you can see, you go and see church, you see mosque. There were no education institution. So few people will rise up and know these are the issues. They then start the war. But predominantly, people were misled that there was a war between Christian and Muslim. There was a war between Arab and 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 African. But the war is was a war of always a power, which we all mm-hmm. understand now to be central. It was about controlling that. If it was war about religion, and then why is Bashir having a problem with people in Darfur who are all Muslim? Mm-hmm. And some of people in Nuba Mountain who are also Muslim, why is he killing them? Why is he doing that? Why was he killing South Sudanese? So you're talking about Omar al-Bashir, yeah. the president of, of yeah. Sudan, yeah. as it's called today. South Sudan now has independence. Let's 
place this story that you're telling geographically. Sudan and South Sudan yeah. sit at the top of the African continent. Uh, there are those that would describe it as an Arab country mm. in North Africa. Mm. Others describe it as an as an as an African country uh, with, with Arab influence. But it does have this unusual mix yes. uh, of of Arab influence, African influence, correct, multi faith. Yes. Uh, Omar al-Bashir is a Muslim. And an African. But is closely aligned with allies in the Gulf. Thank you. For example. Yeah. South Sudan now has independence. Yes. Yeah. How, how much was that sort of independence element driving things when you were a child? Was that something you were aware of? When I was a child, uh, but what I'm talking now is, is uh, in in the cause of my indoctrination into the army. Uh, I know there were two issues. Two issues were the water from the Nile, which was the main focus of the Egypt. And Egypt was basically trying to get divert the water from the Nile by building Jongole Canal in my home, my town. So there was a disaster that was going to happen. And that canal was destroyed. So that was one of the basic part of the war. And, and the war in Sudan, as you plainly put it, I can't, I can't put my hands in any other explanation. It, it is political allies. It's about interest. But it have nothing to do with religion. In South Sudan, at the very moment after we were driven by all these uh, layers of problems, there's oil there as well yes, in yeah. the border area between Sudan and South Sudan. Yeah. Highly contested. Even though there's independence today, the oil fields, mm. it's not clear who controls them. Yes. So let's go back to 1990. Yes. I think you're six years old. Yeah. You're, you're conscripted effectively. Yes. As a child. Mm. And you are ordered to walk to Ethiopia. Why? How does that happen? Do you remember that day? Uh, yes, I do remember the day. I do remember the, uh, when the news came about the conscription, about children being conscripted to, to the army. How, how did that news come? It, it came through my chief and then my chief to my uncle and my uncle to my mother and to my half-brothers. And my half-brother, the one that I described to be a stammerer and also to be one of the great men that had deceived me, but his deception worked properly. Uh, he, he was a policeman before the war broke out, but after uh, he left the police and joined the re uh, rebellion, uh, he was shot on, the, on his arm, and his arm became crippled. So he's crippled now. He's still alive now, but his hand is crippled. He gave me a khaki. The khaki shirt, that, that's where the story, the great man that ever deceived me, he deceived me. He said, if you go to Ethiopia, you will have more shirt, more clothes, everything. You will have something to wear. And that was my first uh, uh, shirt ever, I ever wore in my life. So that was almost a priceless, something that a child would hold that dear to, to his heart or her heart. And um, he said that you will go and be educated, you will study in, uh, in Ethiopia. So that become another deception where I was completely deceived to go to Ethiopia so that I will go and get education and I'll get more shared. No, I wasn't there for that purpose. I was there 
for the purpose of getting uh, try to getting us uh, ready or getting me ready to fight the next episode or the next war, which is the war that uh, I fought in 19, 1992. Um, I've been fighting a whole war since that time. But I which, say, war? which war? Which war? A war between South Sudan and North Sudan. A war in 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 eastern Equatoria. It was a war everywhere, and uh, uh, and 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 that is the war that we're preparing me for. So, how were they preparing you? What sort of thing were you put through? Well, first, uh, if you are divorced from your mother, divorced from your family, and you now have a new family members, and the family members are similar to you, these are children that are put together. And now you start to create some sort of unity, a bond between these children that grow up through hell, through no food, water, nothing. Uh, these children then uh, become very strong, uh, like, each, like brothers and sisters. And after that, uh, we grow, we grow, as, we grew as a unit. We didn't have any some sort of um, a discrimination among us. We were just one force, one force to go and liberate the country. And that was the force that we, we, we became, the Red Army in South Sudan. And most of them, uh, many of them die. Many of them die. What did you learn to do, you know, when you're six, seven, eight years old? What sort of skills were you taught? Well, the first uh, skill, uh, which is in, doc- in the process of indoctrination, is to know that you have uh, your enemy. And the enemy is North Sudan, and the enemy that you're targeting are Muslim, and the enemy is taking your country. That is the first process, and you got to be able to have that idea ideas in your mind. And, that, and how do they instill that? Oh, yes, through lecturing every morning, through getting up, getting tortured. You get up at 4 a.m. and you do exercise. You run until, until maybe 6 a.m., from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., and then you go in and, and, and chain chain, pick up your, uh, your guns and go to the parade and then go through uh, a normal drill, training, exercise, singing songs. And all those songs, they all become meaningful because they, ha- like, they have a poetry uh, strength and, and, and all the, the hate, uh, hatred and, and, and strength and courage, all part, become part of the whole process of indoctrination of the children. So these are very different songs to the ones your father... No, no. Those one, my father sung the songs of happiness, the song of being married, song of being a dinga man with his cattle, song of being a man who's rich, who had everything that he ever won in life. He had an isle, he had fish, he's he's a farmer, he got everything that he needed. But our songs, there were songs of desperation, a song of liberation, a song of uh, happiness and happiness, a song of death. These were the songs that we were singing at the time. They were not no ordinary songs. They were songs of people going to kill. They were songs of people that are going to be killed. These were purely uh, our education. How successful was the indoctrination? Did you believe in the words of those songs? Absolutely. I believe in every single word of my songs. Yeah, there was no, nothing uh, false in my mind about all these things. So that's the psychological side. Did you actually know physically how to kill? Physically, physically, you are ready. Physically, all the years that you go through training, through torturing, through caring, through not sleeping, through 
uh, working daily life, you were prepared physically to encounter any danger. You were trained in weapons that anyone can use. The AK-47 is a banana in, in, in Africa. It's a banana. People can just buy it for uh, recently in South Sudan. You can buy it for less than $200. That's AK-47. And it's any child. A child can just use it without any problem. And one, one of the issues that we, we encounter when we were children is basically the strength of that gun. Uh, if it kick back, sometimes it knock you out. I know kids that used to put their back on the back of the tree in order to fire it because of the recoil. I dislocated my shoulder. My shoulder was popped out. Still today, no good at all. And and this this is this are old part of the training. Everyone was ready. Is there a part of that as a young boy, as a teenage boy, even that is exciting? You know, many young young men, young boys are, are thrilled by the concept of running around playing soldiers. You were being a soldier. Is it in a way an indulgence in any uh, part of your mind at that time? No, no. Look, the only way that I could explain it is simply say that no child should be given a gun. No child should be given a gun, should be trained to use a gun. Even video games, they're quite uh, hurtful. I don't play video games. All my friend knows very well that I never even use video games. Why? I just don't want to go there and have a... I have a flashback. I don't want to see me shooting somebody. It, well, you experiment. People are experimenting and killing people. That's what video game, all these shooting are all about. And if we're training our kids, we're giving our kids all this information, these beautiful games that we think is beautiful, what are they doing in their mind? If they shoot a, a cat, they shot the cat. What make us think that uh, they won't be able to do in real life, in in general? So you can't you can't give a kids a gun and say that the kids will not love that toy. They become a toy, your best friend. They become a toy and a dangerous toy. And that is exactly what what we what we're doing the same way in giving kids a video game. Talk about flashbacks. That's a term often used. What are they? What do you? What what comes to you if you have a flashback? Every night, every night, I. Uh, this is from my own. Uh, after knowing exactly what was occurring to me, when I used to sleep, and it, it, it's okay. Recently, even my my business partner Joe uh, thought that I was running over, just screaming to myself. Uh, and his wife was able to actually relay the words back to me. Uh, it's constant run, constant try to hide from from a shell, from the bomb. Uh, it's a constant yeah, pain that I feel like you're uh, you're being shocked by a gas or or a fire that just went off next to you, or just a, a hand grenade, or a, it's if my colleague just just got killed next to me or 
uh, or somebody just commit suicide next to me. All these things they they are carrying, and when they happen at night, I start to run. And uh, I used to remember waking up every night with uh, either on on top of my head with bruising or uh, uh, or or just bleeding, and my foot, my toe also bleeding, and, and nobody assaulted me, nobody did anything to me. And this was carrying it constantly until I, I just thought to my brother, look, can you try to do me a favor? And then say, what are you going to do? And then I said, I want you to wake up between certain time and then try to monitor that. And so he did that. So we started monitoring my sleeping pattern. And he discovered that if I sleep between 1, one to about 3 a.m., this period here, I would have a nightmare. So he said, you can do something about it. So we start to either sleep early and wake up before the sleeping, uh, the, the, the nightmares kick inside. I try to interrupt my sleeping pattern uh, at between 12.45 and 1, 1.45 a.m. And once I interrupt that, even go to the bathroom and then go back to sleep later, and then I won't have a nightmare. So even still, yes, that that's the only solution for me. And these scenes you see in the flashbacks are they real memories or are these conflations of a series of events? Real memories. And I give you a, one example. There's one colleague. Uh, uh, he's his name is Uh This gentleman uh, he, he was coming from a part of the mobilisation that was taking place in in 1993. And ninety ninety four, and there were mobilization that went to Kenya units to mobilize South Sudanese refugee or children, the former former uh, Red Army that were in Ethiopia and the rest to come back to South Sudan to join the war. So most of them came back from uh, from Kakuma refugee camp to come and join us in a place called Natinga. And Malwal joined us in that training, and we were training them. And then after that, he was become fit. He was put into one of the platoon that was being trained. While he was training, we become friends. And we become involved in a silly practice of trying to create a landmine. And Malwala used to play This is like hand- a game you're yeah. trying to Yeah, he used to play with a hand mines. grenade, yeah. So he, I was right next to him and he played with a hand grenade, small one. And the hand grenade just, hand grenade just blew up. I just fall to the ground and got up. All I see was just blood in his chest all everywhere. It, it, only the only parts that the shrapnel didn't enter was his eye. All of it, his tongue. Everywhere it was old, all done up. It was just ugly. He's, I said before he was the most ugly man <laughs> that I know when I was when we were in the army. He was it was a, a cracker at the joke, but he was indeed become the ugly man at the time. And I was next to him. And I, there was no shrapnel that went to my body, nothing at all. And then the same guy during celebration in South Sudan, uh, independent, he was playing with the gun. Uh, and, and this is all on the internet. It's funny when I, when I met him. He was playing with the guns again, with AK-47. And he shot his nose off again. So now he has no nose, and his whole fig- his whole body is dis- disconfigured. 
and, and all this horror, when you see this, this example, these are just a nice one. When you first witness the first firing squad, when you see those ones getting uh, the, the one who actually the doctor, who was a vet, my uncle who was a vet, became a doctor, who was able to, was able to go and check whether these people were dead or, or not dead. And this was, a do- this was not a doctor, not even a qualified vet, but he became a doctor in that point to go and check whether these people that were shot during the firing squad were basically dead. What about those? What about the kids that pick up a K-47 and then just blew his head off next to me and you call it uh, the gun went off? We just call it, yes. I mean, we say, oh, the gun just went off. What about me just feeling dying when I was shot on the back? Just die completely and wake up later and I'm now alive. All these things, they do happen to me. Do you have memories of being involved in the killing of other people yourself? I have a memory of me being involved in the killing of other people. A memory which I explain in the book about uh, the, the 14th tribal members of Dingdinga, a tribe in South Sudan, that we, 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 we went and captured them and we hand-tied them back to their hands and later on, under the orders of a commander, we found out that, that they let on being executed. All of them were executed. Well, I'm part of it because I was involved in capturing them also and torturing them. How old were you? When I did that, I was 11. You were torturing people? Yeah. yeah. Well, torturing was just, just a way to break somebody down, a way to just humiliate people down. What sort of thing? Well, I can start with me. How do they use to touch it? Me? Well, yeah, they, they dug a hole, and you are being placed in a hole, and they get a barrel of the top of the barrel, uh, petroleum, they just cut it off and put it, put uh, those metal on top of your head, and then your head just fry all day in the sun. When you get out, later on, then you got to get tortured. You got to go through a whipping. Uh, a whipping after you get whipped, and then uh, your hands are tied on your back, uh, on your back, and, and your legs on your back, just sitting on your chest, and um, they leave you in the sun, tail all day, and put a gag on your mouth, and then to the, the same way, and um, get uh, get water, and then just water bomb you, and um, basically, there are more, there are more, and after that, uh, what about? After you you you're now being released from from torturing, and you're now being penalized, and your your uh, your penalty is simply or your punishment part of your punishment is to go and do raid in an army uh, in an army uh, barrack, daylight, risking your life. All these things it doesn't it doesn't make you think about. A death being better or being worse, it just places it right there as not even the center of your uh, thinking or your mindset. 
these, I guess, these techniques which are used on you, you then embrace yourself. Yes, you embrace. You, you then, yes, of course, if you end up being a person in authority, an authority, you will be the most vicious. You will be the practitioner. Uh, thank God I left when I was not in an authority. Thank God that I am not uh, in that uh, position to be in an authority. Thank God I'm in Australia because I can, I'm not in a position to be able to practice those things that were practiced on me. So at the age of 12, you're shot in the back. Yeah. You're smuggled out mm. by a relative. I think it's an in-law. My brother. And you end up mm. in a refugee camp in Kenya. Yes. Is that Dadaab or, or one of the big camps there? Yes. Um, after my brother John smuggled me out from South Sudan, uh, the first thing we tried to do was to uh, was to uh, stay in Kakuma. I, I, I didn't. I was not part of whole thing. I didn't like either Kakuma. I didn't like any camp. I didn't like to be you know to be to come to a foreign country from the very beginning. But I listened to him. So we came to. Kakuma. So you sort of smuggled out against your will, as it were. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I didn't have my choice. He gave me a dilemma. He said, uh, you, "You know better. You know that you're eventually going to die. But if you go, you can't have a future." So you put me in that dilemma. That's the first time that somebody had opened his mind and talked to me about whether there was a future somewhere else. There was some other life somewhere else, because my life, I know, is in the army. My life. I know is if I die in South Sudan, so so what, so what, because it's my country, and I just want I just want peace. I want harmony, or if somebody want to take it from me, I have to defend it, and that is what I have then. But I didn't have any any idea where to take me, where to, where I am now. So all these things, uh, they happen for a reason, and uh, being in a Kakuma. And then my brother decided to say, we want to go to Dadaf and Ifo. It was almost, again, off against my will. I didn't want to move from one place to another. And especially in particular, the way that we were harassed in Kenya by Kenyan police. And uh, in addition to that, uh, for the fact that my brother was tortured twice by the SPLA, or the Sudanese, uh, South Sudanese government, and nearly died. Nearly, he nearly died. They left him in 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 a, in a dumb rubbish dump for him to die. And all these things, when he was determined and driven to leave the country, I wasn't even part of it. I didn't know. I didn't know. I only went to a medical check, and a medical check coming to Australia. So all those things in a camp and being smuggled out and uh, being lucky enough to get an Australian family to sponsor uh, my brother and I and his wife and, and little boy and be able to uh, come to a country where people call it lucky country. <laughs> uh, I use that word loosely because uh, you only say lucky country when you mean it, but when you don't mean it, then just don't say it because words mean everything. They're so important. So 
you're processed as a refugee in Kenya and you're given a ticket to Australia. I've read you say that the first day in Australia was terrible. Yeah. If I had a ticket, if I'd had money and a way to go, I was going to leave the country. It was just too cold. Yeah. Describe your first day in Australia for me. Well, we... 1998. 1998. Well, uh, the first first thing that happened uh, was uh, Bob Harrison came up at the airport and he took us to Blacktown. And we had our first meal, McDonald, in a wrap, wrapped up in McDonald wrapped. And uh, we didn't even know first, we didn't even know how to open McDonald. Maybe my brothers know as idea. But I start eating the whole thing with a bag. And so was my sister-in-law. In the wrapping? In the wrapping. And my brother always cracked a joke. He always was laughing. He said that we were the, we were the most stupid <laughs> people around. So this was one. And, and that's the beginning of, uh, of, uh, of being in, in Australia. So that's, that's the first incident. Second incident uh, was just that overnight. It was just so cold. It was extremely cold. It was extremely cold, extremely cold. And even if you put a heater there, you basically don't feel a heat. We had four heaters at the time. We had four heaters in the house. But worst time, it was when we went to Katoomba to visit my... It, it was the first night, actually. We went to Bob's uh, house, Bob and Christine, and we stayed overnight in, Blue, in Blue Mountain. In the Blue Mountains. Yeah. And uh, it was awful. It was awful to be in Blue Mountain. It was cold. You can't feel your nose. You can't feel your hands. You can't feel any part of your body. It was almost you were just an ice block. I couldn't breathe. I want to leave that day. I want to leave Australia. I was just, I didn't have any, anything, anything. If I had money in my hand, I know where to go, I was going to leave. And then overnight, uh, that's when I nearly electrocuted myself with electric blanket. So, yeah. And <laughs> how did you do that? <laughs> well, I, the, Christine was telling me how to use the electric blanket, put me to my bed, and I sleep. And then I turned it on on high. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with it. And uh, just when it was passing, the time that I normally have nightmares, yeah. basically the nightmares woke me up. And I woke up in a, a sweat in a pool. My whole bed was just a puddle of, of sweat, and I just thought I wet wet my pants. I thought I had that I had that in my mind, so that how bad it was. Until Christine woke up because she 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 just uh, hearing the movement of me, and 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 and, and it, it was just terrible. I couldn't couldn't live in Katoomba, so we came back to Blacktown. Stay in Blacktown and everything goes bad. And and we had that incident where I got a Coca-Cola can and I put in a microwave to, to try to warm it up because everything this was... This is a can of Coca-Cola? Yeah. I put it in a microwave, tried to warm up the Coca-Cola because it was cold. And it detonated. <laughs> detonated. <laughs> it broke down the whole electricity in the whole, in the whole, uh, the whole kitchen. We couldn't eat anything. We didn't have anything. So... All this complexion, everything was just hell, 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 hell. It was hard. And uh, it was hard for almost two years, three years. It was hard. 
it was hard. And one of the horrible incidents that I remember was about uh, an old lady that was hit by a car. Uh, it was just within a year we came to Australia. It was hit by the car, and the car ran. But I saw her on the road, yeah, I saw her on the road. So, but I tried to help, but I didn't even know what to do. I don't know what to call triple or whatever. I didn't know at the time. So I pulled her to the cage, and she handed me the number, the, the phone, and then she started dialing the number, and she was able to manage to speak to the, to the ambulance to come to the scene. I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know. Uh, look at that. Uh, if I knew, if, if I knew, I could have called the ambulance quickly, better than that. So uh, everything was just hard for us to be able to uh, to get to get uh, get to know how to live here. You then taught yourself effectively to read and to write. Yeah. Where does that come from? Where, you know, how do you go from being so unfamiliar with a place that you put a can of Coca-Cola in the microwave and blow the thing up to having this somehow inherent desire and knowledge that you need to, to develop these skills? Uh, well, when I was in the army, I had a skill. I developed a skill. My skill uh, was basically uh, learned how to survive, how to survive any any condition. Uh, and those conditions, that's including uh, having 61 tribes in South Sudan, having all these put together. And you have to learn to get along and you have to know their name you need to know them they're your colleagues there were no nothing between Nuer or Dinka Chuluk or Choli there was not, nothing about that were tribal so I learned to be able to navigate through all difficulties even learning the other dialects in the country so I developed that kind of a, a resilience in being able to get through but when my brothers got me out and came to Australia, and now realizing that that very reason, the very lie that my brother told me, my my older brother, the one that gave me the khaki, they lie about the education. one that took you into yeah. the uh, into the army as yeah. a child in the first place. Yeah, the one yeah that persuaded me. Yeah, yeah, all these things just came to my mind that they were real. They were real promise. Now I had a place. I had a platform. I had. A joy, I had happiness, I had a place to sleep, I had light, I had everything. So this uh, education become almost more invaluable uh, part of my journey and part of my life. I, and I, I got to know myself better, that's what I need to know. And after getting to know myself, what I'm capable of, and that I survived all those issues, all those problems, all these diseases that I got uh, in country and war, I said, well, education is the highest form of struggle. We know that people study for life. It's a long life, studying. But now I've been given opportunity to be able to get there, get there. There's a door there. The door is now open for me. So I took that, 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 that door. I took that opportunity, took interest in, in learning to know myself better and uh, start with, reading books like Bible 
and uh, Bible was easy, straightforward. King James uh, version is always almost as beautiful uh, uh, in poetry uh, written form and also valuable in a grammatical form. So you are able to to know that, and I was able to recite the verse of the Bible, knowing them from A to B, and then get to play because I used to enjoy with my nephew watching Wiggles, and and my nephew was just right there learning, and we sing together, we walk together, we. Which Wiggles song? Ah, uh, oh, what a, embarrassing! I got a bad voice. I'm not a singer. <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> though that in all of these chapters of your life. Yeah. Somehow, at the beginning of each chapter, there is there's there's music, there's song. Yeah, you know, with your father, yeah. and the songs around home. When you joined the army, and the indoctrination in part was through these songs of hate and war mm. and killing, and then here, as you're starting this chapter, there's song again, yeah. songs of learning. Yes, uh, that should be all about life. Uh, life should be musical. Everyone should have a joy to learn, a joy to 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 feel secure. That's that's life. Life should be musical. It should be musical. If you don't like the tone of the songs, and then you can go to another artist, which you like. That should be about life, and and that is, uh, let's look at a selective way of being able to find our uh, our own angle of learning. Uh, not everyone, uh, and, and this is what I was telling people, you don't need to go to high school, primary school, TAFT or whatever. You could be like my father who, who was a, a man that was feeding his family. You could be like him. You could be a farmer, but you didn't went to university. You could be a hefo, uh photomers hunter, and you never need a degree for that. You could fe- lift that musical life. There's a balance there where he was happy. But our learning, if it guide us to, uh, through a musical way of learning it, a uh, beauty of jo- enjoying uh, understanding, and, th- and then we, we, we can have a better knowledge, better dialogues, better understanding of how we should structure our society. And, and that choose is, your own playlist. Yes. And, and that's, that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. And, and that's what I, I'm quite happy to have that playlist in Australia. Uh, and that's that's that basically that's how uh, how you put it is that uh, <laughs> you just gave me a playlist. Australia have given me a playlist now of things that I will enjoy, of things that I will do, of the things that uh, I could share with people, uh, things that uh, people would share with me. That it's a platform of education. into many of our lives through computer screens, mm. through phone screens, with one viral video clip mm. that you f- were featured in. It was for the University of Western Sydney, I think. Yeah. Uh, it was an advertisement, effectively, yes. for the university, and it told your story. Mm. Uh, but it kind of made you quite famous very quickly. It does, yeah. What's the impact that that's had on you? How's that changed things uh, it changed a lot of it changed a lot of uh, trajectory in in how I see life at uh, uh, giving me a different angle now of being able to do certain things that I 
I wasn't in a position to do before. Like? Uh, for example, now, um, the video itself is doing it its own, it's doing it its own work. It's working properly. It's uh, revealing the fact that uh, uh, a migrant in this country uh, uh, can comfortably uh, live here happily, can comfortably live a normal life as a human being, or can comfortably contribute something to the uh, economy. And that's always the, the, the focus now of what the video have done. And it changed uh, some people's attitude toward um, a negative uh, 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 trajectory or vice have changed certain, uh, certain aspect of people, or even if it didn't change some of the aspect of, of their thinking. They, what the video have done, they had in, surely has given those who say that they can't do it an attitude of, yes, I can do something. I can do anything that I want to do in my life. I can go back to Taft and do a diploma and eventually go to university or do something in life. I can be a farmer. I can be a, a, a carpenter. I can be a scientist. But did That's it also do key. that for you? Because it sort of exploded your yes. life opportunities. Yes, yes, it has now. And most of my focus now uh, basically is try to look at uh, uh, our younger generation, students, high school, being able to talk to them about their society, how beautiful society they live in, be able to preach them a different message, different perspective about peace, about their world, and the world that they're going to live in, their environment, the, how they're going to treat the environment, their culture, what is it, their Australian culture, what it is. It will give them that. And that is basically a new message, a new platform where I'm actually going because I think we want our next generation, the next children, the next Australian, to be able to be inspired, that they can be like Julia Gillard, that they can be uh, Malcolm Turnbull, they can be Mark Burr, they can be anyone, anything they want to do. And that, that's my message. That's where I'm going. So it has given me more uh, platform to be able to tell my Sudanese uh, 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 brothers and sisters and other African here, that we can work together to make Australia a better country. And we can work together in Australia to make our homeland that is insecure become secure because we are now one. We are inseparable. We are one. Either way, your pain, in my pain, you could feel it. When I had a tragedy in South Sudan, you will feel that through me because I am now part of you. And the same thing. And, and the same thing that I, will happen to you, I will, uh, I, I will share with you. If it is joy, if it is unhappiness, I will, uh, I will be, I will share a sorrow with you. I will be, give you condolence. Uh. The effect, though, of this is that you you have become something of a poster boy for immigrants in Australia, mm. for right or wrong, mm. and you have a voice. To speak on on those issues, mm. a voice that that is powerful and impactful. Do you feel that sense of responsibility that you have to make the case for Australia accepting refugees, given how controversial it can tend to be in this time of great global 
uh, change? No, 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 no. I, uh, no, I don't think, I don't think so. I, 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 I think uh, Australia start uh, uh, taking immigrants from a different country long, long, long before I came to Australia, and there were many critics long, 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 long before I came here, and there were people that always want more to come to Australia. Long, long before I came here, so all these people are there. My role in 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 Australia now is not to say we want more refugee or we want le- less refugee. I don't stand on that platform. My platform is simple. If we have a country so rich, so beautiful, that what it is, and then we can. Taking refugee that we can manage financially, we can provide them for a time where they are settling here in Australia, and being able to help them so that they can quickly get into work, get a job. Because if we don't assist them to get into workforce, that means I'm creating a pocket of uh, of social uh, people that are socially uh, social welfare dependents. And that is a problem. That is what I see. That is a negative effect, effect of immigration in a larger scale, because we can't bring in more people. Sorry, you can't bring in more people if we can't afford feeding them or housing them. But if we know there are children that are perhaps that are in detentions, and then these people should have a priority in general. If we have such a queue that exists, because children need to be processed quickly, we can't keep them in detention centers, and that is where I'm different from the rest of the people that say, "Let's take twenty from Syria, let's take two hundred from uh, Lebanon, or three hundred from South Sudan." I'm different from other people. I'm saying the the welfare of a child should be the primary, primary. Uh, Idea or the thinking behind a civilized society, and that's all I'm asking. I don't want twenty thousand people to come here when there's one child, and these are adults, and there's one child that is in a detention center. That child could be Isaac Einstein, it could be Michael Temple, it could be anyone in the future, because it's our future. That that's my that's my that's my issue. Even if we have to. Process the child. Make sure we look after the child, and leave the parent in detention center. Yes, I won't disagree with the government because the government have to basically follow the protocol. But if there's a way to bring in a mother and a child, and leave two other people, four other people that are prior that are priority in the queue, and then they're jumping the queue, is now in particular. I agree with it. Before I was wrong when I say the queue is a myth. Now. The queue, if isn't a myth, it exists. Then let that child and the mother jump the queue because they should have a priority because it's necessity. That's basically my argument. Thank you, Akadet. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It's a long story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mosser. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish McDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen McKinnon. 
Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hiwe. We're recorded by Jason Blackwell and Oliver Brighton, mixed by Brendan Zacharias, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.